Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. I'd like to ask you to stand with me. We're going to look at Matthew 12, reading what we read last week and a little further beyond it, beginning in verse 22 through verse 32. This is the word of the Lord. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, speak to us through your word this morning. Thank you for Craig and Psalm 103 for his ability. Father, give us all this ability to remember those of us who are old and those who are young. Father, thank you for the many children who are working on this and doing well. Father, speak now through the words of Christ that we look at, the living word, Father. May your word be attended by power, the Holy Spirit, and conviction. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a passage that goes downhill, (laughs) if you hadn't noticed it. (laughs) It starts at a peak, and it goes (laughs) quite precipitously. I mean, it's not even gradual. Wham! Downhill from that moment. Begins with a demon-possessed man who is blind and mute and brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. And happy, 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 right? And the mute man speaks, and he sees, and the crowds are amazed, and then we go downhill here. Because they say, this man can't be the son of God, can he? Or the son of David, can he? Then the Pharisees add their voices, and it goes downhill even further. They say, no, of course not. This can't be the son of David. This man is casting out demons by Beelzebul. He's allied with Satan, and that's how he's able to do it. And so Jesus speaks to these these charges that are raised against him, the question and the charge, saying, look, Is the kingdom of Satan divided? Is Satan fighting Satan? Is Satan being super satanic and having more disguises and and ploys and strategies? And you never think. So he's fighting himself. So you'll think that, what? What's the purpose of it? Jesus says, look, there's no purpose to it. Satan's not fighting himself. 
Satan is not divided. Uh, his kingdom's not divided. What has happened here, and this declaration is, is one of the great ones of Scripture. He says, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? What is he saying here? Well, it's an, it is a great statement. No man can enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he has first bound the strong man. Okay, so if you want to come to my house and carry off my property and I'm a strong man, you'd better get me before you get my property or I'm going to be after you, right? And uh, Jesus is saying, Satan's a strong man. Now, I just took something from Satan. I just took the demons, cast them out, set this man free from his inability to speak and to see. This dual affliction, it's a, a health affliction because it's healed, but it's also a satanic affliction because it's the demons who are behind it. Jesus says, look, the, bind, the, the strong man is bound. I have bound the strong man. That's how this happened. So he's stating that there is something greater going on than what they actually have been, what they have been witnesses to, what they have been watching, what they have seen, what they're marveling at. He's saying, no, there's something behind it. Something far better and far more glorious. The strong man has been bound. That's how I did this. Jesus binds Satan. Jesus binds the strong man. Jesus binds the strong man and then he does what he wants with his possessions. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about, I, 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 let me also go on and say, he goes on and makes this statement about blasphemy against the spirit. And, and this is not, uh, let me just say, because I, I have it in my notes to say it later, but I want to say it right at the outset and then maybe come back to it. Don't think that this statement about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit is mere impenitence, refusal to repent. I am absolutely with John Calvin on this one. He says, impenitence is nowhere near what this sin is. You know what I mean by impenitence. I mean a refusal to say, I'm wrong in front of God. Jesus is not saying that continued impenitence is an unforgivable sin. He is saying that there is something that is an attack on the Holy Spirit. An attack on the work of the Holy Spirit by people who know that it's the work of the Holy Spirit who denigrate that work of the Holy Spirit, who cast contempt on it, and who say, no, that's not the work of the Spirit. That is the work of Satan. And at that point, Jesus says, you can blaspheme me all you want. You can say I'm doing it by, by the power of Satan. You can say whatever you want. But if you, having tasted the Spirit, come to speak so wickedly of the work of the Spirit. I know some of you think, every time I speak to a a church about the, the unforgivable sin. There are people there who think, oh, I've committed it because I'm, I'm impenitent. I can't get to repentance. We trust God for repentance. God gives repentance as a gift. This sin is something far deeper than that. Now, I, I want to come to you at the end and say, yeah, there are people here who have committed this sin in our passage. I doubt, I doubt there are any here. I really do. And the people in this passage, who's he warning? You know who he's warning. He's warning the, the Pharisees, isn't he? These are the people, people like them, who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. 
People who take the things of God, okay, we're going to come to it. What do the Pharisees do? What is the ultimate blasphemy of their lives? I'll tell you what it is. The ultimate blasphemy that the Pharisees commit is that when Jesus has been raised from the dead, they could put him to death and not be guilty of it. But when Jesus has been raised from the dead and the guards come back and say, angels came down, he has disappeared, the stone was rolled back, there was an earthquake, and they pay those guards to lie and to say it was his disciples who came and stole him. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. And it is unforgivable. Because they know, and they have called it Satan rather than the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of thing we're talking about when we talk about the unforgivable sin. And there's no one here, I guarantee you, I can't, I'm not speaking with the voice of God. There's no one here who's doing this. Now there will be some. It's not a sin that never happens. But let me tell you, I look around, I know you. Really, I know you, I love you. I am not concerned for any of you. I am concerned for you in certain ways, not about this sin, about what goes on in this passage, and I want to speak to you about that. I want to speak to you about the glory of Jesus here, the glory of Jesus that's apparent in this passage, and the glory that is the greater glory. There is an apparent glory in this passage, and it's the minor glory. It's God's lesser glory. And yet it's, it is glory, and it is something that's remarkable, but it is God's lesser glory. The greater glory of God here is it's kind of invisible. And unless by the Spirit you think and you appreciate, you will go right past it, not only in our passage, but as the people in our passage do, in your life as well. Don't miss God's greater glory because your eyes are so fixed on his lesser glories. God's greater glory is it's unfathomable. It's, it's beyond my ability even to communicate to you. It is, it is so intense, so glorious, so wonderful that it's kind of like the big lie that Hitler told in Stalin. You make a lie big enough and people can't believe it. This glory is so big you walk by it and you say... Okay, you take it for granted. It is the glory of God. And the lesser glory is the one we pay attention to and we seek in our lives. Uh, I don't know how many of you have heard of the term common grace. How many of you have heard of common grace? If you have, raise your hand. Common grace, thank you. Okay, I, I know that I need to explain it. Common grace is the grace of God. Remember grace, a great little mnemonic device for understanding what grace means the grace of God is God's riches at Christ's expense g-r-a-c-e God's riches at Christ's expense remember that grace is given to all men and that God has a grace that comes to every man on earth and and it is a, a marvelous grace the Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike it's a statement of God's common grace. God is good to sinners, to all men. He's good to all men in, in countless ways. The, 
Heaven's declaring his glory, the firmament, his majesty. These things are part of his common grace. They declare truths about God. And as we look at our passage, we see a, a great example of common grace that you may say, no, that's not common grace. Yes, it's common grace. And that is the healing of this man. All right? This is common grace. Now, I'm going to have to give you the counterpoint to common grace, which is God's, I don't want to call it salvific grace, it's God's great grace, God's incredible grace on this side, okay? Not his common grace, his personal grace, his loving grace to you. And so as I, as I spell this out, I hope you'll understand as I come over to the great grace of God, why this is common. What's common here is the, the, the miracle that everyone's focused on, this great miracle of a man who is blind and who can't speak, and suddenly he's speaking, and, and he's sick. And you, everyone's going, wow, wonderful, incredible. But at the conclusion of it, two things happen. The crowds go, and one thing doesn't happen. All right, I'll come to that. The first thing that happens is that the crowds say, this can't be the son of David, can it? In other words, this can't be the Messiah, the promised son of God who would come to save his people from their sin. The, the one who would crush the servant's head of Genesis. The, the sacrifice that was foretold by, by Abraham taking Isaac to the altar and putting him there. The, the glory of David, the promise to David that a son of his would reign and who would be his Lord, his son and yet his Lord. The promise of Isaiah. That wonderful counselor, the mighty God is with us. All these things they're saying when they say, surely this can't be the son of David. That's what they're saying. This isn't that guy, is it? That's the first thing. The negative question. And I, I say to you, this, is, this miracle is a great miracle, isn't it? But how many people does it convince? We're not told. Certainly doesn't convince the crowds. They're amazed and they're saying, but this, the whole tone of it is, the tenor is negative. This can't be the son of David, can it? Really, this is, ah, maybe, ah. And then the Pharisees chime in and they say, ah, it's not the son of David. He's a demon. All right? And there you have the precursor to their later sin against the Holy Spirit. Now, they're saying it against Jesus, but then they're going to say it against the work of, spirit, of the Spirit in raising Jesus. Because it was by the Spirit that Jesus was raised from the dead. So we see the, the reason that Jesus says to them, you better watch out, men. Because you're well on your way to not being able to be forgiven because you're close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus goes and, and says these things. So we've seen two things that happen. The crowd in their pessimism... Uh, the Pharisees in their opposition and their hatred. But there's a thing that doesn't happen here. And it's maybe the most striking thing. It's the, uh, what's the word? The, the, the clock that did not strike. It's the thing that you go, you don't notice it until you, until you notice it. What doesn't happen here? Well, what doesn't happen is that the man who's healed doesn't bow down and worship Jesus. You understand? How many miracles do we have where we're told that there were some who came back and thanked him and bowed and worshipped him and others who didn't? If this man got on his face and worshipped Jesus as the King of kings and Lord, the son of David, this passage would tell it. 
This passage would reveal that there was this reaction. But all it tells us is that people were going, huh, huh. Now, in John 9, there's this wonderful, similar passage of a man who's blind, been blind all his life. Jesus makes mud, puts it in his eyes, sends him away to wash it off. And as he washes off the mud that Jesus, by his own spit, has made and put on his eyes. And what a statement of our needing to be humble before God. If God wants to spit on you, count it a blessing, you know. Um, this man washes it off and he sees in, in John 9. And, and then he's attacked, as no doubt this man feared being attacked. The, everyone's going to attack when you say Jesus is something. And so the Pharisees come to that man in John 9 and they say, they say, how'd this happen? Were you really blind? Were you this? Were you that? And the guy answers them. They go back to his parents and say, well, is this your son who was born blind? His parents say, well, yeah, we can tell you that much. But as to how it happened and who did it, we can't tell you because they feared being put out of the synagogue. They were feared that the Pharisees would cast them out of the, the religious circles, the social circles, everything that was of value to them as Jews, observant Jews in that era. They were going to be thrown out, exiled. And so they say, you talk to our son, he's of age. So the Pharisees, the priests, they go back to the son, the man who was healed. And they say, tell us, give glory to God. It's, a, it's an oath. Put him under oath. Say, how did this happen? And he said, I already told you, didn't I? Yeah, I've made it very clear. Uh, they say, this man was a sinner, doesn't he? And he says, well, you know, it's kind of wild. I've never heard of a, a wicked man having God allow him to do such a great miracle. And he, he offends them. And then he says, do you want to be his followers too? Do you want to follow me? And they cast him out of the synagogue. And then Jesus comes to him. And in his glorious glory, his all-surpassing glory, his grace that is greater than anything that's on this side, the common grace, greater grace than the healing of this man, than the, the opening of his eyes, he says to him, do you want to know the Son of Man? Do you want to know the Savior? The man says, Lord, I do. And he says, I before you am he. And he worships Jesus. There is a miracle. There is the supernatural, all-surpassing grace of God. Not the opening of the eyes. You know how many people had miracles occur in their lives that never, ever thanked Jesus? You know, uh, there are two mass miracles that occur, and people knew that Jesus had done them. One uh, was the feeding of the 5,000. The other was the feeding of the 4,000. And those mass miracles were to 5,000 men, 4,000 men, and the scripture says beyond that there were women and children. Which means that if you just say there's probably an equal number of women and an equal number of children, maybe even more, you've got to be at least 30,000 people who ate miraculously, who were the recipients of a miracle by, by Jesus, right? You understand? I think that's a conservative figure, 30,000 people between those two, on two occasions. Just two of the occasions when Jesus was, was teaching, and we know it went on for three years. But on those two occasions, about 30,000 people came under his miraculous power. Now, estimates range, but generally between 1 million and 3 million, the population of Palestine at that time. Am I making sense? 
the whole region, from way in the south, south of Jerusalem, down by the Dead Sea, all the way to the north, to the north of Galilee, the top of the Sea of, the sea of Tiberias or Galilee, all that region had about somewhere between one and three million people. Which means, if it was three million, that one percent of all the people in Judea, in Palestine, in that area at that time, had a miracle done on one of those two days. One percent. If it's one million, it's three percent. You understand? It's a, a vast number, and that's just two days out of three years. Jesus was doing miracles. And he says to the people, I know you're following me because, because I fed you. In other words, they're not following him because they, because they love him. They're not following him because of his greater glory. God's greater glory doesn't mean much to them. They want his lesser glory. And so do you, don't you? You and I are measuring God's goodness to us today by the trinkets that he gives us. By the, the nothings that he gives us. And all too often ignoring the great riches of glory that are implicit in being called sons of God. Gospel John calls Jesus' miracles, including the feedings of the thousands, signs. They were signs. Jesus did a number of signs in the Gospel of John, each of them a great miracle. He did these signs and we worship the signs. But a sign what is a sign? You know what a sign is, don't you? Didn't you think it was funny when you were a kid, if you're a guy my age, when you'd go to a house and you'd see in the basement along the, uh, the stud walls and the, uh, on the, uh, what do you call them, the, the, the steel columns, that, what do you call them, beams. Okay, the beams, the exposed beams of houses when you were my age as a kid, if you're my age as a kid. What did they have so often in houses? Well, I know where I grew up, it was so common to go into a basement and see it lined with beer cans. You know, every different, they'd collect their beer cans and put them up there on the, on the walls along the, the I-beam, you know. And you'd go in there and there'd be thousands of beer cans, all empty, you know. And you go... Huh? What is the point of collecting empty beer cans? You know? And occasionally you'd run to a house and they'd have signs all over. But you would think the person who puts a sign of Chicago up in his living room and, and never goes to Chicago to be a kind of deluded fool, wouldn't you? Am I right? You would say you have the sign You've never tasted the reality. The sign only stands for something. The reality is greater than the sign always, right? Don't live for the sign. Live for the reality that stands behind it. So Jesus does miracles, and they're signs. They're great signs, but just signs. They're his lesser glory. And what do those signs exist for? To point us to the greater glory of God. To point us 
to Jesus, who is the one who has gone into the strong man's house and found him. That's what we live for. That's the true glory of God. Jesus has bound the blind man, the strong man. <laughs> he has tied him up and he is doing what he wants in his house. So the common grace of God, the grace that all men get, all women, miracles are part of it. You don't have to know God in the way that God wants you to know him to receive a miracle from him. He does it all the time. And we would say that Jesus doesn't hear the prayers of the evil and that God doesn't. And there's some ways in which the Bible says it. But it's very particular and specific occasions when it says that. He's warning, it's not in general. How can, a, how can an evil man ever come to God if God doesn't listen to the prayers of evil men? Don't we know that Cornelius, the non-Christian, the, the Gentile centurion, prayed to God, gave money to the Jews, and God said, your prayers have ascended to me, and therefore, and you're, you're giving to the poor. I'd better not leave that out. He says, your prayers and your giving have ascended to me. I am sending you, Peter, to tell you about Jesus. He didn't know Jesus, but his prayers did ascend to God. I, I can go through the Bible if you tend to doubt me and prove to you that God is often answering prayers for the unrighteous. He hears them and he cares. What do we make of Nineveh repenting under Jonah? Did it suddenly become a Christian nation? Or did God see their repentance, their prayers of repentance and forgive them? The earthly, the earthly damages that were their due. The penalty that he had decreed for them in an earthly sense. Now, I, I just want to say to you, God's mercy is everywhere around him. It is falling from the heavens like the rain. But we want more than that. So, young men, you want a girl. You want a wife. And you keep going for the girl, the girl, the girl. And you think, I've got to get the girl. And Jesus says to you, look, I'll give you girls. Lots of guys out there have girls. But if you really want something, seek me and my kingdom and see what I give you. Right? I will tell you something. And that is that in many years of watching and observing the courtship of men and women... What I have seen is that the men who follow the Lord with all their hearts claim all the greatest and most beautiful and wonderful Christian women. And the guys who want the woman, well, they get a woman. Mothers, what do you want? Are you raising your kids to just taste the common grace of God, to do well in their logic classes? to do a score well on their ACTs, or do you want a son or a daughter who's rich with the blessings of God, which isn't found in ACT scores? I'm not saying don't be disciplined. I'm not saying don't work hard and all these things. But, oh, what do we measure God's glory by in our lives? Is it by the scores or is it by the knowledge of God and the fear of God that we see in our children, right? I, 
young guys who are going somewhere in life. You want to make money. You do, I know it. You want to have more, you want to establish your name. You want to be thought of as someone, a guy who left his mark. But what good does it do in the end if in your pursuit of money you haven't made friends through your use of that money who will welcome you into heavenly dwelling places, as Jesus says? Make friends who will precede you to heaven with your money by giving it away so that when you come to heaven, there are people who say, I praise God for you. So that your money is used to bring people to know the greater glory of God, which is not a gift of money, but the kindness and compassion of God because you gave to them so that they see God in you, so that they are led to God. Not your creation of a business, but your creation of a church and a kingdom that worships God. So I, I want to close. And I, I want to close by, by talking to you about the uniform and great, great way that God reveals his glory. You know that everything Jesus did pointed to the cross, right? What were the signs about? That he was the son, the, the promised Messiah, the one who would bear the sins of the world. By his stripes we would be healed. He bore our iniquities. All these signs point to those truths and the closer we come to Jesus on the cross, the closer we come to the glory of God that can't be denied. It's not true, but it's kind of true, all right? It's a generalization, but generalizations have truth in them. Every miracle Jesus did had some detractor. Obviously, the wedding at Cana, I think everyone was happy for the wine. No one spoke against it. But there was no public ministry to react against at that time. But you continue on. He heals the blind men in John, and people want to kill him. He heals, he raises Lazarus. People want to kill him, you know, and Lazarus. Every miracle Jesus does provokes opposition. Occasionally, when he is, when he's done a miracle, like the woman who touched him or the, the blind man in John 9, the person that he heals, the person that he's done a miracle for, appreciates him even though others are detracting from it and opposing it. But there was one time when Jesus had no detractors. Uh, they were there initially and they shut their mouths and they stood as the day went on in wonder. And that's the day that Jesus was on the cross. Because that was the great glory of God. Jesus, who is, Hebrews tells us, the radiance of God's glory, higher than all the angels, because he lived to bring many sons to glory. Jesus, on the cross, was doing the most glorious deed ever done, ever conceived of. 
on the cross. And as they nailed him, the people who walked by mocked him. Come down from the cross. You saved others. Save yourself. But as the day went on, and his authority and his love became clear, they stopped. And one of the thieves, both of the thieves initially were mocking him, but one of them says to the other, whoa, this is not like us. This is different. We should be quiet. And turns to Jesus and says, remember me when you enter your kingdom, your glory. And at that point, no one there was mocking. Jesus dies and the hardened Roman centurion says, he says what the Pharisees won't say. He oversaw the crucifixion. Having overseen it, he stands there and he looks at the body of Jesus and he says, surely this man was the son of God. No miracle caused the world to say, surely this man was the son of God. But the death of Jesus convinced two hardened men right there, this was the son of God. This is the glory of God. And God will give you gifts. God will give you a guy or a girl a car, a house, a vacation home. They're nothing. Common grace, trinkets. On a cosmic scale, trinkets. What we must have is Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that when one sinner repents, there is joy in heaven because the glory of Christ is found most precisely at that moment when we say to God, I'm a sinner. I need you. This demon-possessed man, the blind and mute man, he knew, others knew he needed a physical touch But oh, it would have been great oh, if he had fallen on his knees before Jesus and said, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. Don't stop with the common grace of God. Make your way to his golden glory, the glory of Christ, the radiance of the Father's glory. Make your way through repentance, through honoring him for his death for you by saying, I need you, I need you, I must have you, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his inexpressible glory. We thank you that throughout his life, he showed your grace. And then, Father, he gave us grace. May no one here fall short of the grace of God. No one, Father. Bring us to Jesus. Bring us in repentance. Bring us to see his glory at its highest 
apogee. We pray it in Jesus' name.